This is exactly right. I'm Sarah Iyer. And I'm Stephen Ray Morris. Hosts of the Purrcast. That's Purr with three R's. It's a podcast all about cats. We can't talk to cats, so we talk to people who know and love them. Each episode, we invite a fellow feline lover, comedians, celebrities, kitty caretakers, and animal artists, to name a few, and we gush with them about our favorite furry friends. Tune in to The Purrcast on Exactly Right Network for new episodes every Wednesday. Listen and subscribe to The Purrcast and all of Exactly Right's shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Right meow. This is the final episode in a four-part series. Please listen to Carolina Girls Episodes 1 through 3 before listening to Carolina Girls Episode 4. This is the fall line. I've been detective for about six months, and I um, this will be forever be a case that will stick with me, kind of haunt me until there's some kind of resolution to it. Um, it was one of my first major cases, um, and to this day, I get excited about the case. When I heard, you know, there was another people coming in to look at Aaliyah, I was like, because <laughs> it, it it then evokes all that, like going back to that time of it. Though this is the final episode in the Carolina Girl series. No, there could have been dozens more, season after season, about the missing and murdered of these two states. There are plenty more that need attention. Not just Carolina girls, but people of all ages and gender identities whose cases are waiting, stalled by time, by lack of leads, waiting for the public to remember them. Girls like Tiffany Nelson of Augusta, right at the South Carolina line, or Malakia Logan in Greenwood, South Carolina, both of whom were last seen riding their bikes around their own neighborhoods. Little girls whose remains would be discovered years afterward, whose stories have no clear and final conclusion. We've told you about Tiffany Nelson before. She went missing just a few years after the Millbrook twins, across town. She was last seen airing up her bike tire at a local convenience store. Though her body was found by a hunter in 2005, that discovery hasn't led to her killer. Malakia Logan's story has similarities. Kia, as she was known, vanished in May of 1988. Greenwood, South Carolina is a college town of less than 25,000 and in the Lakelands. Plenty of fishing and swimming and vacationers in the spring and summer. Plenty of bodies of water. Kia lived at the Georgetown apartment complex with her mother, and the Index Journal reports that that's where she was last seen, at around 8.30 p.m. on May 15th, a Sunday, near the basketball courts. She'd ridden over to the courts to play basketball with a group of children, including her older sister. Early reports present a somewhat scattered timeline, but it seems that Kia left the game on her bike. According to the Index Journal, a neighbor saw her right away at around 8.30 p.m. She was noticed missing at 9 p.m., and her bike was soon found leaning against the leasing office door. The search for Kia began that night. By 10.30, it's reported that police officers, volunteer firefighters, and sled agents 
That's the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, the state's Bureau of Investigation. They were searching. Within 24 hours, scent hounds and a helicopter were also brought in. By the 19th, the Index Journal announced that there was a composite sketch of a possible suspect, but that ground searches had turned up nothing. Eventually, there was also a reward. Investigators were circumspect, offering few details on what might have happened to eight-year-old Kia. Her case was covered in detail by our friend Michael Wheland of the Unresolved podcast, and he especially focused on the pain and frustration felt by Kia's mother, a local school teacher, as she waited for weeks and then months to hear what had happened to her child. It would be two years before some answers came. The Index Journal reported that in 1990, a hunter found a skull, one likely belonging to a small child. Per the Index Journal, it would take another eight years to identify that skull as Kia's, with the final testing confirmation coming from the FBI. Though a suspect was eventually developed, even named in the media, and thought to be the perpetrator of a number of child abductions in the Southeast, he was never prosecuted for Kia's murder. To hear more on those proceedings, please check out The Unresolved. Michael's episode is a thorough examination of this case. As of now, Kia Logan's case remains open and her file cold. No updates are available. If there's one thing that the past three years of podcasting have reinforced, it's that disappearances aren't treated equally. Even babies can vanish without a ripple. Just look at Raymond Green, who we covered in season three. He got a paragraph on page 10 of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And when an older child or a teenager goes missing, media coverage can get even more shaky. They're often assumed to be runaways. Even when foul play is immediately suspected, there's no guarantee that families and authorities will be able to construct a precise timeline especially when the missing young person is legally an adult who can come and go as they please. And if they aren't following a strict schedule of school and home, and if they're not under relative supervision. If a missing person splits their time between homes, whether for work or convenience or out of necessity, it can take even longer to realize that they're gone. In 2020, we always have our phones, tracking us even as we keep track of each other. But in 2014, it was only six years ago. There were iPhones and there was social media and cameras on nearly every device and most everything else we count on today. But it was also a time when phones weren't necessarily omnipresent. You might leave yours on the charger when you ran out to the store or forget about it overnight or turn it off and charge it in another room. That's one thing. Another thing is the ability we have now to make a story go viral. In 2020, social media can spread a case or a cause when traditional media won't. Something happens on the street and passersby pull out their phones ready to witness. But in 2014, social media hadn't yet reached its full potential. Just three years later in 2017, Twitter was powerful enough to draw national attention to a story about missing Black women and girls in Washington, D.C. Though it turned out the data concerning the specific D.C. cases was inaccurate, social media highlighted a real crisis. Higher rates of disappearances and death among people of color, 
especially Black and Indigenous Americans, and uneven media coverage in a world where the news is always on. So, social media has been used as a tool to address that. Whether it's alerts from NCMEC or campaigns from groups like Black and Missing or the AWARE Foundation, or by offering another way to share Amber Alerts and Maddie's calls. But it doesn't take the place of sustained, concentrated, traditional media coverage. Even with our access, we can still miss out on the coverage that affects us day to day, what's going on locally in our own cities. Missing persons cases need both national attention and local effort, especially in a time when people are less likely to pick up a newspaper and scan for regional stories or sit down and watch the local news. Local journalism has to be sustained, and it has to report on all the people that it serves. When Aaliyah Bell, a young woman who was living in Rock Hill, South Carolina, disappeared in November of 2014, her face was flyered all over town because her family put those flyers up. They spoke to neighbors. There was coverage in the local paper, The Herald, and we found two more articles in the Charlotte Observer, a North Carolina paper. Aaliyah's family and the Rock Hill Police Department spoke to local television media, and a few of those videos remain online today. But her story never picked up steam on social media, not Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Like Shaikimia Pate, who we talked about in season five, her disappearance was known in the area, but not much further. She was a teenager who used social media often, but that social media hasn't helped in solving her case. And that's a shame because Aaliyah's story, it's the kind of story that people would come back to, wondering again and again what could have happened, if they knew about it. Like Shaikimia Pate, Aaliyah seems to have vanished within a few blocks walk of her own home, in a familiar neighborhood, in a town where she'd lived off and on for years. When we drove up to that town, Rock Hill, we were able to speak with several members of Aaliyah's family, including her aunt Lataria and her godmother Juanita. We also met with the Rock Hill police detective who handled the case back in 2014, Detective Brooks Spellman, and with Detective Keenan McCrory, who took over at the end of 2019. We asked Detective McCrory, who was born in Rock Hill, to describe the town. So to get to your question about Rock Hill, it's like a bedroom community of Charlotte. You know, we're like, I don't know, what, a half hour, maybe 45 minutes away. So typically people go, they work in Charlotte because you can make, you know, really good money, but you can come back to Rock Hill and have a better quality of life because the cost of living is a lot uh, cheaper here. But it's, it's got a big city feel, but it's really honestly like a small town. Uh, in essence, um, like I say, I've grew up here my whole life or whatnot, whatnot. We only recently in the last, I don't know, maybe 10 years really started uh, becoming like a big city, so to speak. But just a bedroom community of Charlotte, to be honest with you. As far as mid-sized southern cities go, Rock Hill is fairly typical. The crime rates are higher than the national average, especially for cities of comparable size. But violent crime rates have been on the decrease since 2017. In 2014, the poverty rate was just a hair below the national average, and its median population a bit younger, likely due to the presence of Winthrop University and nearby York Technical College. The population of Rock Hill is majority white, with African-American residents making up a sizable minority, at nearly 40%. As Detective McCrory said, 
plenty of residents work over the state border in Charlotte, but Rock Hill also employs many citizens in the manufacturing, technology, and health fields. In general, the town hasn't received much national attention, not since 1989 when Hurricane Hugo ravaged the city, taking down infrastructure and closing schools for nearly a month. This is the town where Aaliyah lived for a large portion of her life. Aaliyah Bell, who also went by her mother's last name, Hall, spent most of her time in Rock Hill with her godmother, Juanita, and her maternal grandmother, Jacqueline. Those two women were Aaliyah's primary caregivers in her childhood. In the news press surrounding Aaliyah's 2014 disappearance, she's often presented as transient, couch surfing from one place to another among a number of relatives and friends who didn't know where she was or who she was with. Her family has disputed that presentation. They feel it's described as though she didn't have a home. According to her relatives, from the time Aaliyah was a few months old, they split her time between her grandmother and her godmother's house so that one person had her when the other was working, or for the school year, or for a month. The family very much describes it as a collaborative effort. According to her godmother Juanita, this meant that throughout childhood, Aaliyah only ever spent a brief time in daycare, and then only one that was run by someone that Juanita knew personally. When Julia came to me, she was about three months old. Uh, my daughter and her mother worked at Accurate, and Shamika wanted to go out that weekend, and she didn't have a babysitter, so Mika said she would take her. And when she came in to me, she had these big, beautiful eyes and curly hair, and they're slobbing all over creation, and we just fell in love with her. From then on, up until she was at least six, we had her off and on on the weekend, off and on on the weekend, because my daughter had just adopted my baby girl, baby girl, Quita. She just adopted her. That was her baby. And she would come and stay with us, and she would tell me she ready to go home. She would go stay with Jackie, and then she would come stay with me. And during the summer, wherever her mother was, that's where she was. She would go to her mom during the summer. Her aunts, Lateria and Narisha, were close enough in age to Aaliyah that they were children together. When we sat down with Lateria and Juanita, Lateria talked to us about what it was like when Aaliyah came to stay with her family. I remember when she came with us for the first time, and um, me and Narisha, that's my, my sister, we're 11 months apart. Me and Narisha, we were like, Ma, so Leah gonna stay with us? And she was like, yeah, for a little bit, Tamika get our stuff together. And we was like, okay. So the first week we were okay, right? So we were a little spoiled too. So we were like, okay, okay, well, she gonna be here for a little bit. But after the first week, I mean, it's just like, I love now, she getting all our attention. Wait a minute, we gotta talk about this. <laughs> Ma, she got to go to Aunt Cat's house with us, too. <laughs> so, and then, you know, then we all start going to school together. And so we be like, no, that's my niece. And they'd be like, what? Y'all 11. How y'all got a six-year-old niece? <laughs> like, what? how that happen? That is, that's our niece. And she'd be coming through the hall, auntie, we got to get on the bus. And we'd be like, man, and I, I'm used to being the baby. So I'm not used to being embarrassed, right? So that that's a big thing for me. I'm like, what you doing? Be quiet. I'm around my friends. That's not how we do it. Right. You gotta chill. They also described Aaliyah's personality, traits that stayed with her into young adulthood. They remember her as kind and funny, but maybe a little naive. 
a little behind in maturity and willing to work hard to please those around her. Her maturity level was not up to where it should have been. But she knew life. She knew life. I think that came from... That 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 step that comes in with the being vulnerable, just saying like, oh, well, I haven't been able to get all the attention I needed from where I should have got it from. So this is the only way I know how to receive that attention. And so that I think that's more so what that is. But I do definitely agree with you. Uh, funny and outgoing, determined, very nurturing. Le- Leah has been like she was there when. um when my sister had her kids. And when I tell you we'll cuddle and lay up under a baby all day, she was just very nurturing. Her her spirit called it. Like, you know, just being able to love love on someone. And that and that was at an early age. Like cause like I say, we're six years apart. And I, I remember when I went through this bad breakup, we were all staying actually on the road over. We were staying in the house over there. And I went through this bad breakup. I was so sad. You know how us girls do we'd be in the corner crying. But <laughs> She was like, Auntie, you sad? I was like, Yeah, I'm sad. And I was, I had to be older. I had to be like 21. So she was like 15. And she knew I was sad. My mom had us twin beds. So me and her had to share a room. And my sister had a room. And uh, it was like two o'clock in the morning. I was still over there crying. I thought she went to sleep. She got in my bed and she just held me. She was like, It's okay. I'll hold you. I was like, Girl, move. But at the same time, I was like, This feels so good because I'm so sad. <laughs> So sweet. Yeah, I'm like she was very, like you know, people have their people have their downfalls, but like nurturing, caring. I'm I'm gonna I'm her her mentality of taking care of family mm-hmm. was first. You couldn't it. it was first. You not you not gonna you not gonna say nothing bad about my mama, my grandma, my 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 godmama, my aunt, my cousins, nobody. Caring, determined, funny, vulnerable, wanting love and validation, thoroughly committed to her family. That's how her aunt and godmother describe Aaliyah. Maybe too ready to assume the best about people, especially if she enjoyed spending time with them. She'd had a hard time in school. Aaliyah's family told us that she had a learning disability, but that it hadn't been formally classified. While she was living with her mother in Columbia, she dropped out of high school. When she came back to Rock Hill, her family wanted to help her complete her education. Juanita, her godmother, thought that she needed to finish and get her GED so that she could enroll in cosmetology school. Aaliyah had a natural talent with hair and was very good at styling her own and other people's, a skill that she could capitalize on with the right training. So Juanita made her a deal finish a high school equivalency program, and the family would help her with beauty school tuition. In 2014, at the time of her disappearance, Aaliyah was enrolled in GED classes. Juanita explained to us why she felt it was vital to Aaliyah's future success. And I had told her, I said, once you get your high school diploma, I will help you go to cosmetology school because she could do hair. And she wanted to do makeup. She wanted to do all of it. I said, well, that's where your money come in, doing the makeup and the hair. So we had agreed that if she got her high school diploma, that that's what would be the next step. I told her, you can't do nothing without that high school diploma. I said, you need to at least get that or your GED one. I said, because the high school diploma counts 
the GED will step in. But if you don't have anything, you're just on a long cause. You're just lost. So, Aaliyah had moved back to Rock Hill and was taking classes, on her way to her goal of cosmetology school. She wasn't working at the time, so she spent the time that she wasn't in classes as most teenagers would. Sleeping in, visiting friends, posting on social media. And those social media posts have been analyzed quite a bit, by the local rumor mill at least, to try and find clues as to what happened to her. Some of the photos on Aaliyah's social media accounts are taken in hotel rooms, rented by friends who wanted to hang out away from family. She was like many other teenagers, exploring her identity, going out, maybe pushing the boundaries a little. Her social media accounts are mostly filled with pictures of outfits, new hair, and the three stars that she had tattooed along her upper stomach. When we spoke to Rock Hill law enforcement, who looked extensively into Aaliyah's life, they shared their assessment with us. Just like you said, from what I saw, she's a typical 18-year-old, just kind of living that life, maybe a little knucklehead as far as people trying to make her make good decisions about where to stay and what to do, but she wasn't out here just tearing it up and just doing a bunch of crazy stuff. You know, she's no, just living a normal 18-year-old no, life. As I say, it's no different than any of us. Yes. You have to keep in mind, by the time Aaliyah moved back to Rock Hill, she was legally an adult. If she decided to spend the night out, she could, though she still had to follow the house rules when she was with her godmother or her grandmother. Juanita told us that she had a strict curfew, that Aaliyah needed to be home before Juanita went to bed, which was around 11. After that, the front door would be locked. Aaliyah was aware of this and would plan accordingly. Her godmother remembers making that clear the night Aaliyah disappeared. But she had told me that, we, well, that Wednesday night, she said uh, she was at the door and she had this old pocketbook on her arm. I said, oh, you ain't coming back? She turned around and she said, yep. And she went out the door. But I ain't told her, if you're not in this house, by the time I go to bed, you locked out. So she would always try to be at home by 11 o'clock, because that was my bedtime. 11 o'clock, I'm in the bed, and I'm not getting back up. I would have got back up if she had came. But, you know, I tried to put the fear of God in her, and it worked. It was the week of Thanksgiving 2014, and Aaliyah had settled back into her life in Rock Hill. According to Juanita, she'd planned on getting up early the morning of Thanksgiving and helping multiple relatives cook. And she'd planned on attending several different celebrations, too. That Wednesday, the 26th, she had plans to go over to her uncle's home. He was a relative on her mother's side, the Halls. According to her family, she hadn't grown up spending time with him, so the reacquaintance and closeness was new. Her uncle, Bobby, lived near her godmother, Juanita. Hanging out with him meant that she spent more nights at Juanita's than at her grandmother, Jacqueline's, though most of her belongings remained with the latter. Though she often hung out at her uncle Bobby's house, her godmother and aunt tell us that she didn't sleep over. Instead, she'd walk back over to Juanita's before the door was locked at 11. It wasn't clear that night if she planned to head back to Juanita's afterward. The house was pretty close, or to her grandmother's, or to a friend's, but Juanita was not expecting her back. When Aaliyah left Juanita's house that night, 
It was about 9 p.m., and the walk was short, just a few blocks. Aaliyah's family tell us that they didn't like her walking around town, which is what she did when she visited her uncle. When she went out with her friends, she generally rode in a car. Juanita and her Aunt Lateria talked to us about the path that she would have taken that night. It ain't even two blocks. She would come up the side of the house, a little path, and get to the street where the school is. And she would tell me she would run from the school till she get to the bottom end of um, Confederate, North Confederate. And she said when she made that jump on the North Confederate, it was light and she could walk. But she told me that was her that was her routine. She would run through the path, get to the light because it's dark through that path. And when she get to the north, to the low end of North Confederate, she would walk. But with that being said, it was also said, like on several occasions, Leah, you don't need to walk at night. Leah, you don't. This is not the area for that. You know. So and all and all the smiles and all the you know the laughter, that's cool. And being cool with people, like I say. That that's okay, but it was also said you can't do this because this is not the this is not the world that it was twenty thirty years ago where everything was cool. People do go missing, people do get hurt, mistakes happen. To know Leo is to say, oh, I'm a I'm a walk home before I get in a car with anybody, or if anybody try to snatch me up, we gonna have to fight. Cause and all the loving that she had in her, you was gonna have to fight her yeah, if you, you thought you was. Yeah, if you thought you was just going to snatch her, no. But she did make it safely over, where her uncle, his wife, and some other extended family were waiting. According to local news reports, she was there for a few hours and eventually decided to return to Juanita's. During her visit, it had begun to storm, a serious torrential downpour. Everyone, the family, local law enforcement, considers it somewhat irregular that she would have decided to walk home in that kind of weather. For one thing, she had just done her hair. According to her relatives, normally she would have avoided ruining it in the rain. It has been reported that she asked a relative to walk her home, but that he declined. So, apparently, she headed out alone. And here's another thing. She left her cell phones and her wallet behind. She was carrying two phones because one, her iPhone, was out of service at the time. There's not a clear answer as to why she would have left them behind or braved the weather at all. All we can say is that it's the last time anyone that we know of saw Aaliyah. It's still upsetting for Aaliyah's family to think of her out in the rain alone so close to home. Her aunt Lateria discussed that during our interview. It was said that before she left out the house, um, she was saying, can somebody walk me home? Or can somebody go with me? Or, you know, and they were like, no, you walk that walk every night. You know what I'm saying? And my mom would tell her all the time. She would be like, you know, where you at? And she'll say where she was. And my mom would be like, that ain't the place for you. Thanksgiving came, but Aaliyah didn't arrive at either celebration, not to her godmothers or her grandmothers. They kept expecting her to walk in one of the doors. Juanita, thinking Aaliyah must be with her grandmother, 
and Jacqueline thinking that she was with her godmother. At this point in the story, the family's memories of events and law enforcement records differ in terms of some of the information provided and occasional dates and precise times. We found this to be true in nearly every case, that memory isn't precise and linear in the middle of a crisis. Time has the same effect. Even the detectives' memories varied slightly from their own notes, which they later checked and provided. Thus, we present here a combination of the family's recollections of events and the records as provided by Rock Hill Law Enforcement. During our interview with her, Juanita remembered getting a phone call after Thanksgiving. On the other line was Aaliyah's Uncle Bobby, the one that she'd visited that Wednesday night. He said that he hadn't seen Aaliyah in days and that she was missing. That's when Juanita called police. Per the Rock Hill Police Department's internal records, which they shared with us, that call would have come in on Saturday, November 29th. The report noted that an officer responded to Juanita's home and entered Aaliyah's info into NCIC. According to our interview, it was the family's recollection that they could not speak to a detective over the weekend, rather than a uniformed officer, because those personnel were out until Monday the 1st. Rock Hill tells us that there would have been one detective on call over the weekend, but whether that was communicated to the family is unclear. Aaliyah's aunt Lateria and the rest of Aaliyah's family began searching for her that weekend. This would have been Saturday the 29th and Sunday the 30th. They realized that, after speaking to one another, the last time they'd seen her was Wednesday night. So they began to retrace her steps the best they could and to speak to everyone. So by then we were doing a lot of um a lot of action by ourselves on our feet. Mm-hmm. So um me and my sisters, her mom, um and her other aunt from Columbia, uh they came down that same Thanksgiving weekend. We spent it passing out flyers and putting up posters and whatnot. And while we were doing um doing that, we it was like we had just got done and we were going to do like a little candlelight and you know, we were just we were just trying to to cope each other, basically. On Monday, when Aaliyah's family came into the station, they met with two lieutenants and two detectives. According to the police file, the family established a timeline of events and gave the police several names to check out. People who might know something about Aaliyah's disappearance or life events directly preceding it. So that Monday, that day they met with us, um... They were like, well, we checked here and we checked. So the family had already done a bunch of looking around. They weren't holding anything back with anybody they talked to. And we started working on every every lead they gave us. They gave us, uh, probably filled out two pieces of paper with notes and stuff, handwritten notes on it of phone numbers, people to contact, people that initially hung out with. And we started going through all those kind of methodically through that entire day and the next several days, actually. So just from an instinct standpoint, did y'all feel that she was may have been in danger from the get go? Uh, honestly, no, because typically when you get, you know, when you get these missing person cases in this agency, we get a lot of, say, runaway juveniles. So, you know, those juveniles, they mad at mommy and daddy for whatever reason. Um, we're able to kind of track some of them down. They maybe stand with friends house or whatnot. When you get a when we get missing person cases that are adults, they're usually missing because they want to be missing. You know, they 
for whatever reason. And then usually in a day, couple days, we're able to track them down, find them. They say, yes, I'm safe. This is the reason I'm gone. And typically we won't tell the person that reported it if they don't want us to let them know. So we can tell them, hey, we have found that loved one, whoever that person is, but they don't want you to know where they are and whatnot. But we can tell you that they're safe. Um, and this particular incident, incident, as he talked about, you had those uh, several days where she was, you know, missing and whatnot. But again, nobody had any any inclination that she may have been in any sort of danger. She just, for lack of a better term, she just kind of vanished. According to internal records, officers began by questioning a number of people Aaliyah had hung out with that November. A sick friend who she'd been checking on, a young man whose uncle had an apartment where teenagers could hang out and drink, and a woman in her 20s who considered herself to be Aaliyah's close friend. This woman advised police that she'd heard a rumor that Aaliyah had been seen out on Wildcat Creek Road. That's about 11 miles from Confederate, the road where she was last seen. The word was that Aaliyah had been seen with a man in a ski mask. So, on December 2nd, officers responded by taking flyers to the neighborhood. They spoke to residents who said they hadn't seen Aaliyah. The day before, December 1st, Aaliyah's family was out doing their own canvas and flagged down a passing officer to report that a woman in the neighborhood, the uncle's neighborhood where Aaliyah went missing, had heard screaming that Wednesday night. When the officer questioned the neighbor, she said that she'd heard yelling and banging on her door, but didn't see who'd been on her porch. If it was Aaliyah out there, screaming, this neighbor couldn't offer any illumination as to what had been happening. On December 4th, Aaliyah's family was on Wildcat Creek Road, too. The neighborhood, which includes a big wooded area, had become a concern. The same friend of Aaliyah's who had told the officers about the possible sighting had contacted Aaliyah's family and had told them there was something rotting out there in the forest, something that needed to be checked out. Aaliyah's family was, of course, terrified. By this time, all of Aaliyah's aunts and her mother were in town. They drove out to the area to investigate. The family tells us that when they went to the site, they indeed noticed the smell. Rather than enter the woods and disturb a possible crime scene, they called the police. The officers who arrived went into the brush to investigate. Eventually, they reported back. They'd only found the partial remains of a deer. In the news articles that covered Aaliyah's disappearance, there's never a person of interest named. Police interviewed family and friends, but did not, to our knowledge, develop a suspect or a strong theory as to what might have happened. Except that Aaliyah probably got into a car. Maybe someone offered her a ride, someone she might know from the neighborhood, or an acquaintance from somewhere else in town. On an average night, there would have been neighbors out on the porches enjoying the evening before the holiday, but the rain was so heavy that most stayed indoors. To our knowledge, no one in the neighborhood reported seeing Aaliyah on the street or getting into a car. In the weeks following her disappearance, there was some speculation, rumors really, that Aaliyah might have been involved with people engaged in serious illegal activity, possibly gangs or sex trafficking. The local police department who followed that particular trail for weeks, says that these rumors are untrue. Aaliyah was, as they told us, an average teenager. Vulnerable, maybe, 
kind-hearted, but not mixed up with anything serious. Additionally, police told us that Rock Hill simply doesn't see organized gang activity, not on any real scale, and that the sex trafficking rumors probably arose from the fact that Aaliyah and her friends would occasionally rent hotel rooms. There's no support that she was engaged in any sort of consent sex work or that she'd been groomed or trafficked. The young adults just rented the rooms to have a place to hang out and party. The rumors that went around though, they led to several tips. Police followed up on a number of sightings of Aaliyah, mostly at motels in the local area, but also others in North Carolina and even as far as Atlanta. Per the Herald, and verified to us by police, some of these tips were based on ads posted to the now-defunct back page. Police eventually identified and then ruled out each of the women featured in those ads. Aaliyah's friends were questioned, including a new boyfriend who lived across town and was not in the area at the time, and the female friend who usually rented the hotel rooms. In fact, the police spent a good bit of time questioning that particular friend. She successfully passed multiple polygraph tests, and investigators tell us that her story checked out too. And then, without more information coming in, the investigation lost steam. The case has been in the hands of a number of detectives, though Detective Felmet, who you've heard throughout this episode, was on it the longest. He now works in cybercrime, and Detective McCrory, the Rock Hill native, has been assigned to the case. He tells us he's ready to go back through it, speak to Aaliyah's relatives, and look at new possible leads. To get those leads, though, he needs information. There were dozens of houses in that neighborhood, and hundreds of friends on Aaliyah's social media, and many more people who knew her from around town. Between all of those possibilities, there's got to be someone in Rock Hill who can give investigators a viable lead. Like so many of the families we spoke to for this series, Aaliyah's relatives mark each change in their lives knowing it's another development. A baby, a holiday, a new career, a big move that they can't share with her. Her Aunt Lataria and Godmother Juanita spoke to us about what it's like and how it makes the waiting even more difficult. But that's the only thing Lil kept saying. I'm going to be one day, too. I'm going to be like y'all. He was like, nah, you can never be like us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can never be like She's like, yeah, huh, I'm going to be just like y'all. I'm going to be an aunt one day. And, um, and two, about two months after she went missing, my niece uh, found out she was pregnant with my great niece. So it's a, it's a lot of stuff that we're hoping that she returns so mm -hmm. we, can, we can tell Catch her about up. it. And... And just be able to laugh and, and giggle about it again, you know? Yeah. But I definitely agree with you. When she come back, we'll be in a position where we can laugh about it. But see, right now, it's so serious. Till, you know, when my kids talk about it now, I get upset. First thing they say is, oh, Lord, maybe they crying again. Yeah, I'm going to cry. I told them that was my heart. And I, I just can't understand why somebody would do this. And my prayer each night is that whoever did this would not go to their grave with the information of where and where Leah is and why you did this. Because she didn't ask for it. 
She did not ask to be taken away. She was really going into the prime of her life. I told her if she go to school, I would help her get anything she needed. What you want, I'll help you get a car, whatever, as long as you do right. As long as you do right. But she was just, I, I just don't know what happened. This past year, on her fifth year anniversary, I um I was scrolling through her Instagram and Facebook like I do like every other night, mm-hmm. and I um I found a video I hadn't heard a voice in five years, and it just broke me down because I hadn't heard that voice in so long, and to hear it just made me be like, oh, you gotta come home, you got to come home, and it has to be immediately like you need to come home because. I forgot what it felt like to hear that. Aaliyah Bell was just 18 years old when she vanished in November of 2014. At the time of her disappearance, Aaliyah was 5'6", 145 pounds, and wore a silver lip ring. She has brown eyes, black hair, and three stars tattooed on her stomach. On the night of her disappearance, she was wearing a black peacoat, gray leggings or jogging pants, and blue and green sneakers. She may have attempted to walk home that evening, though it was during a severe storm. If you have any information that could help find Aaliyah, please call the Rock Hill Police Department at 803-329-7200. If you have any information concerning the death of Tiffany Nelson, call the Richmond County Sheriff's Department at 706-821-1000. If you know something that can close Kia Logan's case, please contact the Greenwood Sheriff at 864-942-8600. We'd like to thank all the listeners who've taken the time to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support our show directly on Patreon or via PayPal. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks, as always, to Angie Dodd. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. Written, researched, and hosted by Laura Norton, with interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Our research assistants are Haley Gray, Kim Fritz, and Jess Watford. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Theme music is by RJR. Find our merch in the Exactly Right Pod Swag store, and a portion of our merch proceeds is donated to support the work of the DNA Dope Project. We'll be back soon with a number of new series featuring the cases of missing, murdered, or unidentified adults. In fact, you can expect regular releases from us for the rest of the year. You can follow us at Fall Line Podcast at Instagram and Twitter, The Fall Line Podcast on Facebook, or you can visit our website, thefalllinepodcast.com. If you want more Fall Line while you wait, do check out our show on Stitcher Premium. There, you'll not only get ad-free versions of our current releases, but you'll also get early access releases of special standalone episodes and miniseries. Sign up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com. Use the promo code LINE, L-I-N-E, for a free month of premium listening. Mm-hmm.